Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 68. Last week, I covered the history of Midian. Descended from the fourth son of Abraham and related to the Ishmaelites. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering Sheol and starting the history of Joseph's life in Egypt. So let's get started. Before I get into the meat of this episode, meaning the concept of Sheol, let's first review how it was used in the text. In Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 31, and as usual, from the New Revised Standard Version, Then they, meaning Joseph's brothers, took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They had a long robe with sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. And bear with me as I tread really, really carefully to explain the concept of Sheol without getting too theological. So, with that, let me begin with a disclaimer. I'm not presenting this as a Christian belief, or even my personal belief. I'm merely attempting to give you more insight into Jacob's words and thoughts. So here goes. The Hebrew word Sheol essentially refers to the grave where the dead are placed. This is seen in a reference in Psalms chapter 88 that reads, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like those who have no help, like those forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Like our modern understanding, Death in Jacob's time was understood as being inescapable. All animals, plants, and even man would meet it, our common fate. Various references throughout the Old Testament attest to this, but before you go and look it up, a word of caution. Many of its references are allegorical, and therefore not necessarily to be taken literally. For example, Psalm chapter 49 reads, Such is the fate of the foolhardy, the end of those who are pleased with their lot. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. There are some readers, well, some interpreters, who use this passage to show that animals go to Sheol, too. But in my mind, at least, the passage hinges on the word like. Too theological? Maybe. Backing away. The concept of Sheol is actually deeper than that of merely a grave. It was thought to have been in the depths of the earth, as written in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 11, and Ezekiel chapter 31, 
and also various other passages in the Old Testament. But to note, this could also have been merely a reference to the depth of a tomb, or maybe a cave, such as where Abraham's family was interred. Ecclesiastes, in chapter 9, states that there is no work, or thought, or knowledge, or even wisdom in Sheol. It also implies that there is no love, hate, or envy. There are continued descriptions, but you probably get the point. Jacob was mourning, and essentially wishing he were dead. And one more note. The New Revised Standard Version uses the word Sheol, while both the King James and the New International Versions simply use the word grave. And like I said before, Sheol is a Hebrew word. The generally accepted translation into Greek is the word Hades, and that helps to explain the use of the Greek word in similar situations in the New Testament. I'll explain the differences way in the future when I get to that part of the Bible. As far as the history of the place goes, the Babylonians had a similar underworld called Ar-Allah, and like I mentioned, the Greeks had one known as Hades. And this is not to be confused with the concept of Hades as found in the New Testament. They just shared the word itself. There are a few other names for Sheol, including Abaddon, which translates to the word ruin, and is found in Job chapter 28 and Proverbs chapter 15. But the passage in Proverbs uses both Sheol and Abaddon. So it's a bit unclear if it was used for emphasis or if the writer meant the two as two separate places. Also, the word bore, meaning pit, is found in Isaiah's chapters 14, 24, and 38, as well as Ezekiel chapters 26 and 28. Finally, note that translations other than the New Revised Standard Version may use the word shakat, which translates to corruption, instead of the word pit. Either way, Jacob was referring to a dark, desolate, empty place. Hopefully I waded through that without crossing the line into theology. The chapter ends with the sentence, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt, to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. As we later learn, Joseph was purchased by Potiphar for use as a household servant. Which brings me to the next topic of the podcast, Who was this Potiphar? Well, the vast majority of what we know about this man was in that single sentence. But, before working through Potiphar and Jacob's interactions with him, and since the story picks up in chapter 39, I'll first work through that chapter itself. And before anyone writes in, as soon as I'm done with Potiphar and Joseph, I'll circle back to chapter 38. Beginning in chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, 
The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he had no concern for anything but the food that he ate. End quote. Then Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph, and he was thrown in prison as a result. Now, interestingly, the normal sentence for the crime he was accused of was death by execution. But Joseph was not handed such a fate. Why was this? Well, probably because Potiphar did not trust and therefore believe his wife. Now, to be clear, this theory is essentially speculation as there is nothing in the text to support it. And it probably goes without saying, but it must be noted that when the text says that Potiphar was one of Pharaoh's officials, it meant he wasn't your average Egyptian. He was most likely known in the royal court, a person of some level of importance. Also, the phrase captain of the guard could indicate several different jobs, including an actual captain of Pharaoh's bodyguards, or maybe a ranking general, or the equivalent rank of the era in the military. Now, there are some biblical theorists who believe that Potiphar could have been in charge of a prison, maybe even a specific one reserved for those who displeased or disobeyed Pharaoh. And chapter 39, verse 20, makes it seem like Potiphar had a ready access to a prison when it reads... And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But then again, a few verses later, we learn of a different person with the title of chief jailer. Other scholars think the captain of the guard may have also been an Egyptian executioner, someone who you hope to meet more than once and also gain favor with. But back to the theory that Potiphar was somehow in charge of the prisons. Now, if true, this may have actually boded well for Joseph. Well, at least better than not knowing the head honcho at all. After all, he had already gained Potiphar's favor, to the extent that Potiphar didn't have Joseph executed. Well, that, and retaining God's favor. And this may have led to the passage at the end of the chapter. The chief jailer, committed all the prisoners who were in the prison to Joseph's care. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Potiphar is also mentioned in the Quran, where his name is given as Aziz. His wife is not named in the Old Testament, but a 16th century disputed Jewish commentary on the Torah known as Sephor Hayasher, gives Potiphar's wife's name as Zulikia. The same name can be found in Islamic traditions and a Persian poem. Other than these few mentions in Jewish and Islamic tradition, not much else is known of Potiphar. Which brings me to Genesis chapter 40. Now in chapter 39, Joseph was sent to Pharaoh's prison due to the false accusations of Potiphar's wife. In chapter 40, both Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker were sent to the same prison. I'm not sure if I would want to work for this monarch. While they are in prison, the captain of the guard apparently made Joseph their servant. 
It was while these two royal servants were in the same facility as Joseph that he interpreted their dreams. And a few days later, and in line with Joseph's interpretations of their dreams, the cupbearer was restored to Pharaoh's court, and the baker was hanged. And Joseph, well, he was forgotten about. Now there is one curious tidbit in the first paragraph of the chapter, and that is that they were imprisoned in the custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. This passage suggests that Potiphar was indeed the head of the prison. There aren't really any historical people or places in this chapter, but there is a concept introduced for the first time, and that is the royal cupbearer. And this position appears not only in this chapter, but also in Nehemiah, in the Deuterocanonical Book of Tobit, both in their first chapters. It was also mentioned in both 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. I'll get to those mentions in a minute. Since it appears in both the Old Testament and outside sources, it's worth a few minutes of our time. While the concept may seem strange to us in our modern first world of bottled drinks and packaged food, Throughout history, a cupbearer was a common position in the royal court. Overall, the position throughout history, including that of the Egyptians' royal house, was an officer of high rank in royal courts. It was the obligation of the cupbearer to serve drinks at the royal table. Due to the constant fear of assassination plots and conspiracies, read poisoning, the reigning monarch had to have the highest trust in the cupbearer, and since he, and it was usually a he, would taste the pharaoh or king's drink before the ruler would consume, he had to guard against poison in the king's cup. After all, his own life was at risk too. And this trust would spill over into other areas, as the position yielded great contact with the ruler and typically great influence. The passage in Genesis chapter 40 is the first mention of a cupbearer in the Bible. But of course, up until this point, there really wasn't any lengthy enough interaction of the cast of characters with anything resembling royalty. Now I realize kings and rulers were mentioned, but these mentions were more of a historical recounting of victories and defeats in battles and wars but not anything close to describing the interactions of a royal court. As a note, both the New Revised Standard and the New International versions translate the original Hebrew to cupbearer, but the King James uses the word butler. A butler is a slightly different job, and we may never know which person it was actually, but it doesn't really make a difference. Whatever the role, the person thrown into prison with Joseph was a personal servant to the Pharaoh. The passage in verse 2 of the same chapter adds a little color, maybe clarity, as to the size of Pharaoh's entourage as both the cupbearer and baker are listed with the prefix chief, seemingly implying that there were others in the same position that were subservient to the two imprisoned fellows. Now I can understand why a ruler would need several bakers especially in the era when everything was made from scratch. But several cupbearers? That seems like overkill. Maybe it was a butler, and several sub-butlers. Wait, that sounds awkward. Hmm, I don't know what to call them. Assistant butlers? 
Cupbearers are also part of the narrative found in both 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Both of these passages record the visit of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon's court. The king and the queen are attended to by his royal court, which included cupbearers, and the text indicated the plural. Also, unlike the passage in Genesis, the three versions of the Bible I use for this podcast all called this position cupbearer. Moving along in the Old Testament, later, and in terms of a historical timeline, several centuries later, in the period following the Babylonian exile, Nehemiah was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the sixth king of the Persian Empire. It is thought that in this position, Nehemiah as cupbearer was afforded both a high level of authority and was also paid well. Well, the book bearing his name, in chapter 5, doesn't really say he was paid a great deal of money, but it does show he was probably better off than average as he was loaning money to less fortunate other exiled Jews. It also states he had personal servants. So, as you would expect for a member of the royal court, he was apparently well off. In Isaiah chapter 36 is found the word Rabshake, which was once translated to mean chief of the cupbearers, but is now thought to more accurately reflect the phrase chief of the officers, or chief of the princes. The word is originally Semitic Akkadian, and then was used in Aramaic. In these languages, it was reserved for the chief cupbearer, which may help to explain some of the confusion. And it was used by the Assyrians as late as World War I as a military rank. I actually previously covered a royal cupbearer, none other than Sargon of Akkad, aka Sargon the Great, cupbearer to Urzabab of Kish in the 24th century BC. Probably over 1,000 years prior to the writing of Genesis chapter 40. The Egyptian role apparently existed for over a thousand years too, as it appeared on the Rosetta Stone, which dates to 196 BC. On this inscribed stone, apparently Diogenes' daughter served in the role. In fact, during the Ptolemaic period of ancient Egypt, well, actually beginning in about 238 BC and running through the death of Cleopatra in 30 BC, Many of the royal decrees listed either the title, or in some cases the name, of the person serving in the role. But, the position was not limited to Mesopotamia and Egypt. Cupbearers were present in ancient Greece, too. In Greek mythology, Habib, who was the goddess of youth, also served as the original cupbearer to the Greek gods of Mount Olympus. She actually, well not actually, it's a myth after all. Anyway, she served them nectar in Ambrosia. She was thought to be the daughter of Zeus and Hera. Homer, in his epic poem, The Iliad, wrote, The gods were seated near to Zeus in council, upon a golden floor. Graciously, Habib served them nectar, as with cups of gold they toasted one another, looking down toward the stronghold of Ilion. But, Habib's job as cupbearer came to an end when she married hero Hercules. She was replaced by Ganymede, a Trojan prince and divine hero. 
After Greece, in Roman mythology, the position was held by the goddess of youth, Juventa. But back to the real world. Within Visigothic royalty was a position known as Comes Sancorium, which translates to the Count of the Cupbearers. The Visigoths were the western branches of the nomadic tribes of Germanic people, collectively referred to as the Gauls. They controlled much of northern Europe in the first millennium AD. In their society, the Count served beverages to the King himself, while his subordinate cupbearers served lesser royals and guests. In the long history of the Holy Roman Empire, which given its interactions with the Christian faith will be covered later, during the empire, the King of Bohemia served as what was known as the Arch Cupbearer, but, as you would suspect, considering he held the title of King himself, the role was largely ceremonial and traditionally was performed only during coronations of the Emperor of the Empire. The normal day-to-day -day practice, at least through most of the Empire, was that the Count of Limburg served as the cupbearer. That was until 1714, when the Count of Althon took over. Cupbearers also appeared in Shakespeare's The Winter Tale. And, Rumor has it that the job of taster continues to this day, such as for the leaders of most major nations. But the role does not have the power that it held for thousands of years of history, including that in Genesis 40. And that's probably a good place to end this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the tale of Joseph, covering what is found in Genesis chapter 41. Time permitting, I'll also circle back to chapter 38. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. Doing so helps others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.